for the love of reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. I would like to introduce you to some kindred spirits, wonderful fictional characters from some really splendid writers. We will meet a pair of unusual allies in the opening chapters of a novel written more than a hundred years ago, and then some surprising companions in a short story by one of the greatest American writers, and finally, an unlikely friendship told in poetry by an astonishing narrator. To begin with, we will read from The Enchanted April, which is surely the most famous work of Elizabeth von Arnheim, who was a novelist, an English novelist. She wrote more than 20 books, and The Enchanted April was the Book of the Month Club selection when it was published in 1922, and it has been adapted over and over and over, at least three times for the stage and twice as films. So here is the very beginning of The Enchanted April. It began in a woman's club in London on a February afternoon, an uncomfortable club and a miserable afternoon, when Mrs. Wilkins, who had come down from Hampstead to shop and had lunched at her club, took up the times from the table in the smoking room and running her listless eye down the agony column saw this... To those who appreciate wisteria and sunshine, small medieval Italian castle on the shores of the Mediterranean to be let furnished for the month of April. Necessary servants remain, inquires Z, box 1000, the Times. Mrs. Wilkins dropped the newspaper with a gesture that was both irritated and resigned and went over to the window and stared drearily out at the dripping street. Not for her were medieval castles, even those that are specially described as small. Not for her the shores in April of the Mediterranean and the wisteria and the sunshine. Such delights were only for the rich. Yet the advertisement had been addressed to persons who appreciate these things, so that it had been, anyhow, addressed to her, too, for she certainly appreciated them, more than anybody knew, more than she'd ever told. But she was poor. In the whole world, she possessed of her own only 90 pounds, saved from year to year, put by carefully, pound by pound, out of her dress allowance. She'd scraped this sum together at the suggestion of her husband as a shield and refuge against a rainy day so that Mrs. Wilkins' clothes were what her husband, urging her to save, called modest and becoming and what her acquaintance to each other, when they spoke of her at all, which was seldom, for she was very negligible, called a perfect sight. Mr. Wilkins encouraged thrift, Except that branch of it which got into his food. He did not call that thrift. He called that bad housekeeping. But for thrift, which like moth penetrated into Mrs. Wilkins' clothes, he had much praise. 
"'You never know,' he said, "'when there will be a rainy day "'and you may be very glad to find you have a nest egg. "'Indeed, we both may.' "'Looking out of the club window into Shaftesbury Avenue, "'hers was an economical club, "'but convenient for Hampstead where she lived "'and for the grocers where she shopped. "'Mrs. Wilkins, having stood there for some time very drearily, "'her mind's eye on the Mediterranean in April,' and the wisteria, and the enviable opportunities of the rich, while her bodily eye watched the really extremely horrible sooty rain falling steadily on the hurrying umbrellas and splashing omnibuses, suddenly wondered whether perhaps this was not the rainy day Mr. Wilkins had so often encouraged her to prepare for, and whether... To get out of such a climate and into the small medieval castle wasn't perhaps what Providence had all along intended her to do with her savings. Part of her savings, of course. Perhaps quite a small part. The castle, being medieval, might also be dilapidated, and dilapidations were surely cheap. She wouldn't in the least mind a few of them because you didn't pay for dilapidations which were already there. On the contrary, by reducing the price you had to pay, they really paid you. But what nonsense to think of it. She turned away from the window with the same gesture of mingled irritation and resignation with which she had laid down the times and crossed the room towards the door with the intention of getting her Macintosh and umbrella and fighting her way into one of the overcrowded omnibuses and going to the fishmongers on her way home and buying some sole for Mr. Wilkins' dinner. Mr. Wilkins was difficult with fish and liked only sole. When she beheld Mrs. Arbuthnot, a woman she knew by sight as also living in Hampstead, sitting at the table in the middle of the room on which the newspapers and magazines were kept, absorbed, in her turn, in the first page of the Times. Mrs. Wilkins had never yet spoken to Mrs. Arbuthnot, who belonged to one of the various church organizations and who analyzed, classified, divided, and registered the poor. Mrs. Wilkins and Mr. Wilkins, when they did go out, went to the parties of Impressionist painters, of whom in Hampstead there were many. Mr. Wilkins had a sister who had married one of them, and because of this alliance, Mrs. Wilkins was drawn into a circle which was highly unnatural to her, and she'd learned to dread pictures. She had to say things about them, and she didn't know what to say. She used to murmur, Marvelous! and feel that it was not enough. But nobody minded. Nobody listened. Nobody took any notice of Mrs. Wilkins. She was reluctant. She was shy. Also, she was always with Mr. Wilkins, that clean-shaven, fine-looking man. His sister's circle admired him. Naturally, Mrs. Wilkins was blotted out. She, said his sister, should stay at home. But Wilkins could not leave his wife at home. He was a family solicitor, and all such have wives and show them. With his, in the week, he went to parties, and with his, on Sundays, he went to church, and it was there that Mrs. Wilkins became familiar, though never through words, with Mrs. Arbuthnot. 
She saw Mrs. Arbuthnot marshalling the children of the poor into pews. She would come in at the head of the procession from the Sunday school, exactly five minutes before the choir, and get her boys and girls neatly fitted into their allotted seats and down on their little knees in their preliminary prayer, and up again on their feet just as, to the swelling organ, the vestry door opened and the choir and clergy emerged. She had a sad face, yet she was evidently efficient. The combination used to make Mrs. Wilkins wonder, for she had been told by Mr. Wilkins, on the days when she had not been able to get soul, that if one were efficient, one wouldn't be depressed, and that if one does one's job well, one becomes automatically bright and brisk. About Mrs. Arbuthnot there was nothing bright and brisk. Much in her way with the Sunday school children was automatic, but when Mrs. Wilkins caught sight of her there in the club, she was not being automatic at all. She was looking fixedly at one portion of the first page of the Times, holding the paper quite still, her eyes not moving. She was just staring, and her face, as usual, was the face of a patient and disappointed Madonna. Obeying an impulse she wondered at, even while she was obeying it, Mrs. Wilkins, the shy and the reluctant, instead of proceeding as she had intended to the cloakroom and from thence in search of Mr. Wilkins' fish, stopped at the table and sat down exactly opposite Mrs. Arbuthnot, to whom she had never yet spoken in her life. It was one of those long, narrow refectory tables, so that they were quite close to each other. Mrs. Arbuthnot, however, did not look up. She continued to gaze with eyes that seemed to be dreaming at one spot only in the times. Mrs. Wilkins watched her a minute, trying to screw up courage to speak to her. She wanted to ask her if she had seen the advertisement. She did not know why she wanted to ask her this, but she wanted to. How stupid not to be able to speak to her. She looked so kind. She looked so unhappy. Why couldn't two unhappy people refresh each other on their way through this dusty business of life by a little talk, real, natural talk, about what they felt, what they would have liked, what they still tried to hope? And she could not help thinking that Mrs. Arbuthnot, too, was reading that very same advertisement, her eyes were on the very part of the paper. Was she, too, picturing what it would be like? The color, the fragrance, the light, the soft lapping of the sea among the hot little rocks. Color, fragrance, light, sea. Instead of Shaftesbury Avenue and the wet omnibuses and the fishmongers and the tombs to Hampstead and the dinner and tomorrow the same and... The day after the same, and always the same. Suddenly, Mrs. Wilkins found herself leaning across the table. Are you reading about the medieval castle and the wisteria? she heard herself asking. Naturally, Mrs. Arbuthnot was surprised. But she was not half so much surprised as Mrs. Wilkins was at herself for asking. Mrs. Arbuthnot had not yet, to her knowledge, 
set eyes on the shabby, lank, loosely put-together figure sitting opposite her, with its small, freckled face and big gray eyes almost disappearing under a smashed-down, wet-weather hat, and she gazed at her for a moment without answering. She was reading about the medieval castle and the Mysteria, or rather had read about it ten minutes before, and since then had been lost in dreams of light, of color, of fragrance, of the soft lapping of the sea among the little hot rocks. Why do you ask me that? She said in her grave voice, for her training for the poor had made her grave and patient. Mrs. Wilkins flushed and looked excessively shy and frightened. Oh, Oakley, because I saw it too, and I thought perhaps, I thought somehow, she stammered. Whereupon, Mrs. Arbuthnot, her mind being used to getting people into lists and divisions from habit, considered, as she gazed thoughtfully at Mrs. Wilkins, under what heading, supposing she had to classify her, she would most properly be put. "'And I know you by sight,' went on Mrs. Wilkins, who, like all the shy, once she started, plunged on, frightening herself to more and more speech by the sheer sound of what she'd said last in her ears. "'Every Sunday. I see you every Sunday in church.' "'In church?' echoed Mrs. Arbuthnot. "'And this seems such a wonderful thing, this advertisement about the wisteria and... Mrs. Wilkins broke off and wriggled in her chair with the movement of an awkward and embarrassed schoolgirl. It seems so wonderful, and it is such a miserable day. And then she sat looking at Mrs. Arbuthnot with the eyes of an imprisoned dog. This poor thing, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot, whose life was spent in helping and alleviating, needs advice. She accordingly prepared herself patiently to give it. "'If you see me in church, I suppose you live in Hampstead, too?' "'Oh, yes,' said Mrs. Wilkins, her head on its long, thin neck drooping a little as if the recollection of Hampstead bowed her. "'Oh, yes.' "'Where?' asked Mrs. Arbuthnot, who, when advice was needed, naturally first proceeded to collect the facts.' But Mrs. Wilkins, laying her hand softly and caressingly on the part of the times where the advertisement was, as though the mere printed words of it were precious, only said, Perhaps that's why this seems so wonderful. No, I think it's wonderful anyhow, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. Then you were reading it? Yes said Mrs. Arbuthnot, her eyes going dreamy again. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wonderful, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, her face which had lit up faded into patience again. Very wonderful. But it's no use wasting one's time thinking of such things. Oh, but it is! was Mrs. Wilkins' quick, surprising reply, surprising because it was so much unlike the rest of her, the characterless coat and skirt, the crumpled hat, the undecided wisp of hair straggling out. And, and just the considering of them is worthwhile in itself, such a change from Hampstead, and sometimes I believe, I really do believe, 
that if one considers hard enough, one gets things. Mrs. Arbuthnot observed her patiently. Perhaps, she said, leaning forward a little, if you will tell me your name, if we are to be friends, and she smiled her grave smile, as I hope we are, we had better begin at the beginning. Oh, yes, how kind of you. I'm Mrs. Wilkins. I don't expect that conveys anything to you. Sometimes it doesn't seem to convey anything to me either. But I am Mrs. Wilkins. She did not like her name. It was a mean, small name, with kind of a facetious twist, she thought, about its end, like the upward curve of a pug dog's tail. There it was, however. There was no doing anything with it. Wilkins she was, and Wilkins she would remain. My husband, went on Mrs. Wilkins to Mrs. Arbuthnot, trying to throw some light on herself, is a solicitor. He... She cast about for something she could say of Mr. Wilkins and found he's very handsome. Well, said Mrs. Arbuthnot kindly, that must be a great pleasure to you. Why? Because, because beauty, handsomeness, is a gift like any other, and if it is properly used, Mrs. Arbuthnot trailed off into silence. Mrs. Wilkins' great gray eyes were fixed on her. Mrs. Wilkins was not listening. For just then, absurd as it seemed, a picture had flashed across her brain, and there were two figures in it, sitting together under a great trailing wisteria that stretched across the branches of a tree she didn't know, and it was herself and Mrs. Arbuthnot. She saw them. She saw them, and behind them, bright in sunshine, were old gray walls, the medieval castle. She saw it. They were there. And therefore, she stared at Mrs. Arbuthnot and did not hear a word she said. And Mrs. Arbuthnot stared, too, at Mrs. Wilkins, arrested by the expression on her face, which was swept by the excitement of what she saw and was as luminous and tremulous under it as water in sunlight when it is ruffled by a gust of wind. They stared at each other. Mrs. Arbuthnot surprised, inquiringly. Mrs. Wilkins, with the eyes of someone who has had a revelation... Of course, that was how it could be done. She herself, she by herself, couldn't afford it and wouldn't be able, even if she could afford it, to go there all alone. But she and Mrs. Arbuthnot together, she leaned across the table. Why don't we try and get it? she whispered. Mrs. Arbuthnot became even more wide-eyed. Get it? Yes, said Mrs. Wilkins, still as though she were afraid of being overheard. Not just sit here and say, how wonderful, and then go home to Hampstead without having put out a, a finger to go home just as usual and see about the dinner and the fish, just as we've been doing for years and years and will go on doing for years and years. In fact said Mrs. Wilkins, flushing to the roots of her hair, for the sound of what she was saying, of what was coming, pouring out, frightened her, and yet she couldn't stop. 
I see no end to it. There is no end to it. So that there ought to be a break. There ought to be intervals in everybody's interests. Why, it would really be being unselfish to go away and be happy for a little because we would come back so much nicer. You see, after a bit, everybody needs a holiday. But how do you mean, get it? asked Mrs. Arbuthnot. Take it. Take it? Rent it, hire it, have it. But do you mean you and I? Yes, between us, share. Then it would only cost half. And you look so, you look exactly as if you wanted it as much as I do. As if you ought to have a rest, to have something happy happen to you. What? But we don't know each other. But just think how well we would if we went away together for a month. And I've saved for a rainy day, and I expect so of you, and this is a rainy day. Look at it. She is unbalanced, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot. Think of getting away for a whole month from everything to heaven. She shouldn't say things like that, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot. Yet she felt strangely stirred. It would indeed be wonderful to have a rest, a cessation. Habit, however, steadied her again and made her say, uh, But then, you see, heaven isn't somewhere else. It is here and now. We are told so. She became very earnest, just as she did when trying patiently to help and enlighten the poor. Heaven is within us. We are told that on the very highest authority. And you know the lines about the kindred points, don't you? Oh, yes, I know them, interrupted Mrs. Wilkins impatiently. The kindred points of heaven and home, continued Mrs. Arbuthnot, who was used to finishing her sentences. Heaven is in our home. It isn't, said Mrs. Wilkins, again surprisingly. Mrs. Arbuthnot was taken aback. Oh, but it is. It is there if we choose, if we make it. I do choose, and I do make it, and it isn't. Then Mrs. Arbuthnot was silent, for she too sometimes had doubts about homes. She sat and looked uneasily at Mrs. Wilkins for neither had she had a holiday for years, and the advertisement, when she saw it, had set her dreaming. And Mrs. Wilkins' excitement about it was infectious, and she had the sensation, as she listened to the impetuous, odd talk and watched the lit-up face, that she was being stirred out of sleep. Clearly, Mrs. Wilkins was unbalanced, but Mrs. Arbuthnot had met the unbalanced before. Indeed, she was always meeting them, and they had no effect on her own stability at all, whereas this one was making her feel quite wobbly, quite as though to be off and away, and just for once be happy, would be both good and desirable. Which, of course, it wasn't. Which certainly, of course... It wasn't. She also had a nest egg, invested gradually in the post office savings bank. But to suppose that she would ever forget her duty? 
to the extent of drawing it out and spending it on herself was surely absurd. Surely she couldn't, she wouldn't ever do such a thing. Surely she wouldn't. She could never forget her poor, forget misery and sickness as completely as that. No doubt a trip to Italy would be extraordinarily delightful, but there were many delightful things one would like to do, and what was strength given to one for except to help one not to do them? Steadfast as the points of the compass to Mrs. Arbuthnot were the great four facts of life. God, husband, home, duty. She had a great dread of being awakened out of so simple and untroublesome a condition. Evidently, Mrs. Wilkins was rudderless, blown about by gusts, by impulses. Poor little thing, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot. All she saw was Mrs. Wilkins' small, eager, shy face and her thin shoulders and the look of childish longing in her eyes for something that she was sure was going to make her happy. No, such things didn't make people happy, such fleeting things. Mrs. Arbuthnot had learned in her long life with Frederick, he was her husband, and she'd married him at twenty and was now thirty-three, where alone true joys are to be found, they are to be found, she now knew only in daily, in hourly living for others. They are to be found only at the feet of God. Frederick had been the kind of husband whose wife betakes herself early to the feet of God. For years she had been able to be happy only by forgetting happiness. She wanted to stay like that. She wanted to shut out everything that would remind her of beautiful things that might set her off again longing, desiring. I'd like so much to be friends, she said earnestly. Won't you come and see me or let me come to you sometimes? Whenever you feel as if you wanted to talk, I'll give you my address, she searched in her handbag, and then you won't forget, and she found a card and held it out. Mrs. Wilkins ignored the card. It's so funny, said Mrs. Wilkins, just as if she'd not heard her, but I see us both, you and me, this April, in the medieval castle. Mrs. Arbuthnot relapsed into uneasiness. Do you? she said, making an effort to stay balanced under the visionary gaze of the shining gray eyes. Do you? Don't you ever see things in a kind of a flash before they happen? Never. She tried to smile. She tried to smile the sympathetic yet wise and tolerant smile with which she was accustomed to listen to the necessarily biased and incomplete views of the poor. And she didn't succeed. The smile trembled out. Of course, it would be most beautiful. Most beautiful. Even if it were wrong, said Mrs. Wilkins, it would only be for a month. Anyhow, I'm sure it's wrong to go on being good for too long until one gets miserable. And I can see you've been good for years and years because you look so unhappy. Mrs. Arbuthnot opened her mouth to protest. And I, I've done nothing but duties, things for other people ever since I was a girl. And I don't believe anybody loves me a bit, a bit. And I long, 
Oh, I long for something else. Something else. Was she going to cry? Mrs. Arbuthnot became acutely uncomfortable and sympathetic. She hoped Mrs. Wilkins wasn't going to cry. Not there. Not in that unfriendly room with strangers coming and going. But Mrs. Wilkins, after tugging agitatedly at a handkerchief that wouldn't come out of her pocket, succeeded at last in merely blowing her nose with it, and then, blinking her eyes very quickly once or twice, looked at Mrs. Arbuthnot with a quivering air of half-humble, half-frightened apology, and smiled. "'Will you believe?' she said, trying to steady her mouth, evidently dreadfully ashamed of herself. I've never spoken to anyone before in my life like this. I can't think. I simply don't know what has come over me. It's the advertisement, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, nodding gravely. Yes, said Mrs. Wilkins, dabbing furtively at her eyes. And us both being so, she blew her nose again a little. Miserable. Of course... Mrs. Arbuthnot was not miserable. How could she be, she asked herself, when God was taking care of her? But here was another fellow creature in urgent need of her help, and not just boots and blankets and better sanitary arrangements this time, but the more delicate help of comprehension, of finding the exact right words. The exact right words. The exact right words would be a suggestion that it would do no harm to answer the advertisement. Non-committal, mere inquiry, and what disturbed Mrs. Arbuthnot about this suggestion was that she did not make it solely to comfort Mrs. Wilkins. She made it because of her own strange longing for the medieval castle. "'There's no harm in simply asking,' Mrs. Arbuthnot said in a low voice, "'as if all her dependent poor were listening and condemning. "'It isn't as if it committed us to anything,' said Mrs. Wilkins, "'also in a low voice, but her voice shook. "'They got up simultaneously and went to a writing-table, "'and Mrs. Arbuthnot wrote to Z, Box 1000, The Times, for particulars.' She asked for all particulars, but the only one they really wanted was the one about the rent. They both felt that it was Mrs. Arbuthnot who ought to write the letter and do the business part. Not only was she used to organizing and being practical, but she was also older and certainly calmer. And nor had Mrs. Wilkins any doubt of this. The very way Mrs. Arbuthnot parted her hair suggested a great calm that could only proceed from wisdom. But if she was wiser, older, and calmer, Mrs. Arbuthnot found herself sharing the excitement and longing. And when the letter had been posted in the letterbox in the hall and was actually beyond getting back again, both she and Mrs. Wilkins felt the same sense of guilt. It only shows, said Mrs. Wilkins, as they turned away from the letterbox, how immaculately good we've been all our lives. The very first time we do anything our husbands don't know about, we feel guilty. 
Oh, I'm afraid I can't say I've been immaculately good, gently protested Mrs. Arbuthnot, a little uncomfortable, for she had not said a word about her feeling of guilt. Oh, but I'm sure you have. I see you being good, and that's why I know you're not happy. She shouldn't say things like that, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot. I must try and help her not to. Aloud, she said gravely, I don't know why you insist that I'm not happy. When you know me better, I think you'll find that I am. And I'm sure you don't really mean that goodness, if one could attain it, makes one unhappy. Yes, I do. Our sort of goodness does. We have attained it, and we are unhappy. There are miserable sorts of goodness and happy sorts, The sort we'll have at the medieval castle, for instance, is the happy sort. That is, supposing we go there. After all, we've only written just to ask. Anybody may do that. I think it quite likely we shall find the conditions impossible, and even were they not, probably by tomorrow we shall not want to go. I see us there, was Mrs. Wilkins' answer to that. You've just heard the very beginning of The Enchanted April, a novel by Elizabeth von Arnim, published in 1922. And in case you're terribly concerned, they do go to Italy. But to find out what happens there, you should read the novel. I got it from the library. So now let's go across the pond to New York City and back in time to 1904 with a short story by that master of the form, O. Henry, titled, Makes the Whole World Kin. The burglar stepped inside the window quickly, and then he took his time. A burglar who respects his art always takes his time before taking anything else. The house was a private residence, By its boarded front door and untrimmed Boston ivy, the burglar knew that the mistress of it was sitting on some oceanside piazza telling a sympathetic man in a yachting cap that no one had ever understood her sensitive, lonely heart. He knew by the light in the third-story front windows and by the lateness of the season that the master of the house had come home and would soon extinguish his light and retire. The burglar lighted a cigarette. The guarded glow of the match illuminated his salient points for a moment. He belonged to the third type of burglars. This third type has not yet been recognized and accepted. The police have made us familiar with the first and second. Their classification is simple. The color is the distinguishing mark. When a burglar is caught who does not wear a collar, he is described as a degenerate of the lowest type, singularly vicious and depraved, and is suspected of being the desperate criminal who stole the handcuffs out of Patrolman Hennessy's pocket in 1778 and walked away to escape arrest. The other well-known type of burglar is the one who wears a collar. He is always referred to as a raffles in real life. He is invariably a gentleman by daylight, breakfasting in a dress suit, while after dark he plies his nefarious occupation of burglary. 
His mother is an extremely wealthy and respected resident of Ocean Grove, and when he is conducted to his cell, he asks at once for a nail file in the police gazette. He always has a wife in every state of the Union, and fiancés in all the territories. This burglar wore a blue sweater. He was neither a Raffles nor one of the chefs from Hell's Kitchen. The police would have been baffled if they attempted to classify him. They have not yet heard of the respectable, unassuming burglar who is neither above nor below his station. This burglar of the third class began to prowl. He wore no masks, dark lanterns, or gumshoes. He carried a thirty-eight caliber revolver in his pocket, and he chewed peppermint gum thoughtfully. The furniture of the house was swabbed in its summer dust protectors. The silver was far away in safe deposit vaults. The burglar expected no remarkable haul. His objective point was that dimly lighted room where the master of the house should be sleeping heavily after whatever solace he'd sought to lighten the burden of his loneliness. A touch might be made there to the extent of legitimate, fair, professional profits— Loose money, a watch, a jeweled stick pin, nothing exorbitant or beyond reason. He'd seen the window left open and had taken the chance. The burglar softly opened the door of the lighted room. The gas was turned low. The man in the bed was asleep. On the dresser lay many things in confusion. A crumpled roll of bills, a watch, keys, three poker chips, crushed cigars, a pink silk hair bow, and an unopened bottle of Broma seltzer for the morning. The burglar took three steps toward the dresser. The man in the bed suddenly uttered a squeaky groan and opened his eyes. His right hand slid under his pillow and remained there. Lay still, said the burglar in a conversational tone. Burglars of the third type do not hiss. The citizen of the bed looked at the round end of the burglar's pistol and lay still. Now, hold up both your hands, commanded the burglar. The citizen had a little pointed brown and gray beard, like that of a painless dentist. He looked solid, steeped, irritable, and disgusted. He sat up in bed and raised his right hand above his head. Up with the other one, ordered the burglar. You might be amphibious and shoot with your left. You could count two, can't you? Hurry up now. Can't raise the other one, said the citizen with a contortion of his liniments. What's the matter with it? Rheumatism in the shoulder. Inflammatory. Was. The inflammation has gone down. The burglar stood for a moment or two, holding his gun on the afflicted one glanced at the plunder on the dresser, and then, with a half-embarrassed air, back at the man in the bed. Then he, too, made a sudden grimace. Ugh! Oh! Don't stand there making faces, snapped the citizen bad-humouredly. If you've come to Borgo, why don't you do it? There's some stuff lying around. <laughs> Excuse me, said the burglar with a grin, but it just socked me one, too. <laughs> it's good for you that rheumatism and me happens to be old pals. I got it in my left arm, too. Almost anybody but me would have popped you when you wouldn't hoist that left claw of yours. How long have you had it? inquired the citizen. 
four years. I guess that ain't all. Once you got it, it's you for a rheumatic life. That's my judgment. Ever try rattlesnake oil? Asked the citizen, interestedly. Gallons, said the burglar. If all the snakes I've used the oil of was strung out in a row, they'd reach eight times as far as Saturn, and the rattles could be heard at Valparaiso, Indiana, and back. Some use Chisholm's pills, remarked the citizen. Fudge, said the burglar. Took em five months, no good. I had some relief. The year I tried Finkelman's extract, balm of Gilead poultices, and Potts pain pulverizer, but I think it was the buckeye I carried in my pocket what done the trick. Is yours worse in the morning or at night? asked the citizen. Oh, at night, said the burglar, just when I'm busiest. Say, take down that arm of yours. I guess you won't. Say, did you ever try Blickerstaff's blood builder? I never did. Does yours come in paroxysms or is it a steady pain? The burglar sat down on the foot of the bed and rested his gun on his crossed knee. It jumps, said he. Strikes me when I ain't looking for it. I had to give up second story work because I got stuck sometimes halfway up. I tell you what, I don't believe the blooming doctors know what is good for it. <laughs> Same here. I've spent a thousand dollars without getting any relief. You're swell any? Of mornings and when it's gonna rain. Great Christopher. Me too, said the citizen. I can tell when a streak of humidity the size of a tablecloth starts from Florida on its way to New York. And if I pass a theater where there's a tearjerker matinee going on, the moisture in my left arm starts jumping like a toothache. It's undiluted Hades, said the burglar. You're dead right, said the citizen. The burglar looked down at his pistol and thrust it into his pocket with an awkward attempt at ease. Say, old man, he said constrainedly, ever try Opadale Dock? Slop, said the citizen angrily. Might as well rub on restaurant butter. Sure, concurred the burglar. It's a salve suitable for little Minnie when the kitty scratches her finger. I tell you what, we're up against it. I only find one thing that eases her up, eh? <laughs> A little old sanitary, ameliorating, lest we forget booze. Say, this job's off. Excuse me. Get on your clothes. Let's go out and have some. Excuse the liberty, but... Ah, oh, oh, there she goes again. Uh, for a week said the citizen. I haven't been able to dress myself without help. I'm afraid Thomas is in bed and... Climb out, said the burglar. I'll help you get into your duds. The conventional returned as a tidal wave and flooded the citizen. He stroked his brown and gray beard. It's very unusual, he began. Here's your shirt, said the burglar. Fall out. I knew a man who said Ombury's ointment fixed him in two weeks so he could use both hands and tie in his tie. As they were going out the door, the citizen turned and started back. Oh, like to forgot my money, he exclaimed. Laid it on the dresser last night. The burglar caught him by the right sleeve. Come on, he said bluffly. I ask you, leave it alone. I got the price. Ever try witch hazel and oil of wintergreen? 
And that was Makes the Whole World Kin by O. Henry. And perhaps the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And speaking of beautiful friendships... The novelist, poet, newspaper columnist, and playwright Don Marquis gave us the extraordinary friendship of Archie the Cockroach and Mehitabel the Cat. These are poems narrated by Archie in free verse, and they first appeared in New York newspapers from 1916 to 1925. So from Archie and Mehitabel, here are the circumstances of Archie's first appearance. Something happened to our own typewriter only a couple of weeks ago. We came into our office earlier than usual in the morning and discovered a giant cockroach jumping about upon the keys. He did not see us, and we watched him. He would climb painfully upon the framework of the machine and cast himself with all his force upon a key, head downward, and his weight and the impact of the blow were just sufficient to operate the machine one slow letter after another. He could not work the capital letters, and he had a great deal of difficulty operating the mechanism that shifts the paper so that a fresh line may be started. We never saw a cockroach work so hard or perspire so freely in all our lives before. After about an hour of this frightfully difficult literary labor, he fell to the floor exhausted, and we saw him creep feebly into a nest of the papers, which are always there in profusion. Congratulating ourselves that we had left a sheet of paper in the machine the night before, so that all this work had not been in vain, we made an examination, and this is what we found. Expression is the need of my soul. I was once a verse Libra bard, but I died, and my soul went into the body of a cockroach. It has given me a new outlook upon life. I see things from the underside now. Thank you for the apple peelings in the waste paper basket, but your paste is getting so stale I can't eat it. There is a cat here called Mehitabel I wish you would have removed. She nearly ate me the other night. Why don't she catch rats? That is what she is supposed to be for. There is a rat here she should get without delay. Most of the rats here are just rats, but this rat is like me. He has a human soul in him. He used to be a poet himself. Night after night I have written poetry for you, on your typewriter, and this big brute of a rat who used to be a poet comes out of his hole when it is done and reads it and sniffs at it. He is jealous of my poetry. He used to make fun of it when we were both human. He was a punk poet himself, and after he has read it, he sneers, and then he eats it. I wish you would have Mehitabel kill that rat or get a cat that is on to her job and I will write you a series of poems showing how things look to a cockroach. That rat's name is Freddy. The next time Freddy dies, I hope he won't be a rat but something smaller. I hope I will be a rat in the next transmigration, and Freddy a cockroach. I will teach him to sneer at my poetry then. Don't you ever eat any sandwiches in your office? I haven't had a crumb of bread for I don't know how long, or a piece of ham, 
or anything but apple parings and paste. Leave a piece of paper in your machine every night. You can call me Archie. Mehitabel the cat claims that she has a human soul also and has transmigrated from body to body. And it may be so, boss. You remember I told you she accused herself of being Cleopatra. Listen, Archie, she said. I have been so many different people in my time and met so many prominent gentlemen. I won't lie to you or stall. I do get my dates mixed sometimes. Think of how much I have had a chance to forget, and I have always made a point of not carrying grudges over from one life to the next. Archie, I have been used something fierce in my time, but I am no bum sport, Archie. I am a free spirit, Archie. I look on myself as being quite a romantic character. Oh, the queens I have been, and the swell feeds I have ate. A cockroach which you are, and a poet which you used to be, Archie, couldn't understand my feelings of having come down to this. I have had bids to elegant feeds where poets and cockroaches would neither one be mentioned without a laugh. Archie, I have had adventures, but I have never been an adventuress. One life up and the next life down, Archie, but always a lady through it all, and a good mixer too. Always the life of the party, Archie, but never anything vulgar. Always free-footed, Archie, never tied down to a job or housework. Yes, looking back on it all, I can say is I have had some romantic lives and some elegant times. I have seen better days, Archie, but what's the use of kicking, kid? It's all in the game. Like a gentleman friend of mine used to say, Toujours gay, kid, toujours gay. He was an elegant cat. He used to be a poet himself, and he made up some elegant poetry about me and him. Let's hear it, I said, and Mehitabel recited... Persian pussy from over the sea, demure and lazy and smug and fat. None of your ribbons and bells for me. Ours is the zest of the alley cat. We would rather be rowdy and gaunt and free and dine on a diet of roach and rat. Roach, I said. What do you mean, roach? Interrupting Mehitabel. Yes, roach, she said. That's the way my boyfriend made it up. I climbed in amongst the typewriter keys, for she had an excited look in her eyes. Go on, Mehitabel, I said, feeling safer, and she resumed her elocution. We would rather be rowdy and gaunt and free and dine on a diet of roach and rat than slaves to a tame society. Ours is the zest of the alley cat. Fishheads, freedom, a frozen sprat, dug from the gutter with digits frantic, is better than boars in a fireside mat, Mehitabel, us for the life romantic. Missiles around us fall rat-a-tat, but our shadows leap in a ribald antic, as over the fences were world cries scat, Mehitabel, us for the life romantic. Ain't that highbrow stuff, Archie? 
I always remembered it. But he was an elegant gent, even if he was a highbrow and a regular bohemian. Archie, him and me went aboard a canal boat one day, and he got his head into a pitcher of cream and couldn't get it out and fell overboard. He come up once before he drowned. Toujours gay, kid, he gurgled, and then sank forever. That was always his words, Archie. Toujours gay, kid, toujours gay. I have known some swell gents in my time, dearie. Signed, Archie. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, Kindred Spirits, Toujours Gay, Kid, Toujours Gay. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack. The program is archived and available on the KZYX For the Love of Reading podcast, on demand with the KZYX phone app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And at lindapack.net, you will find information and links to all the other shows aired on For the Love of Reading. Stay tuned at 9 p.m. for Radiogram with Jamie Roberts. KZYX, For the Love of Reading, is a production of listener-supported community radio, KZYX and Z, public broadcasting from Mendocino County, California. On our website, kzyx.org, you will find links to all our podcasts, including KZYX Mendocino County Remembered, Oral Histories Read for You by Linda Pack. You can also stream live programming and show your support by clicking the red Donate button. This is Linda Pack. Thanks for listening.